There's another podcast you should be listening to, TED Health, a podcast from the TED Audio Collective. Join host Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter as she introduces you to leading health experts and breaks down the health questions you didn't know you had. Learn more about the way your body works and the newest insights changing the medical world, like what a smart bra means for better heart health, three ways to prepare for the next pandemic, and how we can all live healthier lives. Find TED Health wherever you listen to podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. November 16th, Ottawa, Algonquin call, call it fuck it. No, you no, you got it, man. It is really hard for me to say it because of Algonquin. Gonquin? Gonquin. Like it's the going from Al to Gon to Quinn is hard for my mouth. Algonquin. <laughs> like three syllable. It's a tough three syllables for you to string together. Yeah, yeah. It's like there's like my tongue can't do it. Interesting. Anyway, November 16th at Algonquin College. In Ottawa, we are doing a live show and the tickets are on sale right now. Uh, you can find the uh, tickets in the show notes of this episode or go on over to Instagram to our uh, link in the bio. You can find the tickets there. Uh, it's going to be really fun. We got a wild guest lined up. It's I, I mean, you know, I feel like all the guests we have have really crazy stories. But this particular story is <laughs> it's. It is pretty. It's a lot. Yeah. There's a lot going on. I remember you telling me about it. Yeah. So uh, go get your tickets. If you're in Ottawa or in the surrounding areas, uh, come out, hang out. We'd love to see you. Uh, one night, one night only. One night only. Um, and uh, speaking of social media, at CBC Podcasts on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, uh, pop on over there and give them a check out. Uh, lots of great podcasts coming at you from the CBC fam. So uh, be sure to check that out, including something that really fits into will will really fit into our audience and stuff that you're interested in um, is uh, somebody we had on the show yesterday. And oh, yeah. so that will come out uh, soon um, call a, a CBC podcast called one in six, uh, which is in reference to one in six people who uh, in Canada and uh, and globally will experience infertility issues yeah um which really which i resonate with uh, a lot because my wife and i kyla had to go through ivf and fertility stuff uh to have our our beautiful baby gal and um and we had the 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 host and producer of that show uh on sick boy uh we recorded an episode with them yesterday so yep. episodes yeah. coming up probably next week looking forward to it um all right taylor uh i know people can't see this but do you know what this is uh, and can you explain what it is you're looking at? Um, looking at a cube, uh, which has like several different sort of, um, uh, not like Aztec, but like like ancient, uh, like ancient civilization esque yeah. uh, designs on it. Um, I would probably say that it has something to do with dark magic, um, <laughs> and that Dude, if you really good guess, yeah, that if you open it up, you're probably going to unleash a. Uh, sort of like a Pandora's box of 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 evil and sorcery that um, will do you actually will, know what this is? Spur a global <laughs> um, like globe trotting uh, adventure, uh, which would of course be filmed by a by a, by a gigantic film crew uh, in order to try and put that evil back in the box and save humanity. Uh, so you were, I mean, you had a lot of that, right? A lot of that wrong near the end. You got it wrong. Um, this is the, uh, Le Marchand's lament configuration, which is a puzzle box, uh, from the movie series Hellraiser. Oh, okay. Um, so, uh, it's a puzzle box that when the, the person using it solves the puzzle and changes the configuration from this cube to the next configuration, which there are several. Um, Necromancer uh, is released. Uh, well, Cenobites are released, and Cenobites are uh, some refer to them as angels, some demons, um, and their sole purpose is to um, is to fuck yeah, 
pretty much fuck you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> fuck you to death, basically. Uh, their whole thing is like deriving pleasure from pain and your pain brings them good pleasure. Ah. Um, and uh, you were Hellraiser for Halloween. Right? I was. Yeah, I was pinhead uh, for Halloween. Um, and I was carrying around. I actually have uh, Le Marchand's uh, Lament uh, configuration that I ordered on Amazon. Uh, it's pretty sweet. And you can actually change the configuration into the first configuration, which from the movie is uh, mm. uh, no bueno. You don't want to do Do that. you end up on any government list if you purchase that online? <laughs> well, Taylor, here's the interesting thing. The, why am I showing you the Lament configuration right now? Because <laughs> you're in legal trouble? <laughs> no, dude. So actually here, first, let me show you what happens when you solve the puzzle box. This is a clip from Hellraiser. So this gentleman is in the midst of uh, solving the puzzle. He's changing the configuration as we speak. And as he pushes it down, spikes, hooks, uh, go right into his back, into his his spine. Um, And basically what happened was uh, those those hooks um, were attached to chains that came from the ether. And uh, they pull him apart. He blasts into a hundred different pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the Cenobites appear. Uh, they put him back together and they take his soul and form to hell or wherever the Cenobites are from. I'm pretty sure it's hell. And they just fuck him for eternity um, in wow. all sorts of different ways that uh, we wouldn't consider very fun fucking. No. Well, Walmart is now selling the Hellraiser puzzle cube, <laughs> but they're selling it as a children's STEM toy. Wait. Oh, but do they know that it, it just looks a lot like, it. <laughs> no, 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 no. It is the, uh, it is the lament configuration. Here's a image from uh, Walmart. It says brain game. And uh, in this image uh, that you cannot see, it's a, it's a loving father with his young daughter and she's holding the uh, lament configuration there's in so her many, hands. There's so many problems with this. So problematic. Is this one's a great one. It says brain game against two toddlers uh, trying to... St- Actually, he solved it. Holy shit. That oh little kid God. in the red oh, no. is in for a <laughs> bad time. Oh, my God. <laughs> so Walmart is selling replicas of the lament uh, configuration. Are the they reason. calling it that? Uh, no, they literally just call, call it like puzzle box. So it's just... An, like they're, they're just... They, they, they just have a copyright accident. Yeah, like, like they they like someone someone slid yeah. this in here thinking like, well, no one fucking cares about Hellraiser anymore. So unfortunately, they do. There was a new Hellraiser that just was released on uh, Hulu oh, really? uh, in the last uh, actually just before Halloween. It was like October 9th or something. Uh, and it's and and the puzzle box is uh, obviously a big part of it. Um, so, yeah, uh, Walmart's selling replicas of the configuration, the Hellraiser puzzle cube that summons the hellish Cenobites and promises the solver an eternity of kinky pain. Uh, and they're selling it as a STEM toy <laughs> replete with posed photographs of children playing with them. Uh, so if you're looking for a good gift this Christmas for your kid, why not? <laughs> why not get the lament configuration? I, I, to be honest with you, as someone who bought it and like a massive Hellraiser fan, it um did you buy it, one that actually works yes, or was yeah, it like a yeah. like a DIY? I meant to fucking bring it with me to show you, but yes, you can you can change the configuration. It looks just like from the movie. It's fucking amazing. Um, but if you're looking to get a a really fucked up gift for your kid, are you just waiting? And you like, happen to love Hellraiser. You just waiting for like a like a really a really like the right mood to solve it. I solved it several several times. Over and my back and over is again. fucked. <laughs> <laughs> I got some back problems. I'll tell you. The, tell the you. other dimension. Let me tell you. <laughs> I think it's so funny. Like, you know, we've been talking about kids a lot lately I, on the podcast that you just mentioned recording with Jen uh, and Neil from one in six. We were talking about kids and, you know, and we've been talking about like fucking up your kids, you know, how mm-hmm. easy it is to fuck mm-hmm. up your kids. Mm-hmm. And as an uncle, like this gift is one of those gifts. Like I'm always looking for gifts that, when I buy gifts for Hudson and Austin, I like no one else will know that is that it's funny, but you're like, no, 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 <laughs> no. I mean, there is a, there's an element of that, but also I buy gifts for them knowing that it's inevitable for them to, at one point, look at the gift, you know, five, six, seven years down the road, when they start to get, when they start to transition to a certain age, they look at their toys and they go, these are for babies. I don't want these anymore. And I've told my sister, anything and everything that I've bought your children 
I need you to ensure me that you're not going to throw any of them out. You keep them. I will take them back. I'll add them to my collection of toys. Right. I collect figurines, stuff like that. I'm a fucking 34-year-old man. I have toys, whatever. (laughs) And I will keep them. I got toys. But then here's here's the best part. It's the gift that keeps on giving because when those kids turn 25, I give them back the toy mm-hmm. and they have this whole new appreciation for it. It's like my mom pulled out, you know, um, like a, a sick Lego set that I had as a kid and I forgot about. And she was like, Oh, I found this in the closet. Do you want it? I'd be like, Oh my God, hell yeah. Like, absolutely. I want the death star Lego set from 1963 or, or 1993 or whatever. You know, you know what I would really love my parents to do right now. I would really love for them to find lying around in the cracks and crevices of our house, of our family house that I grew up in. I would love for them to find the, 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 the bag of porn magazines that you no, found in the woods behind your house. No, no, that is for sure disintegrated into dust. Um, but the two, I think the cum that makes the pages stick together is like an accident a, preservative. Right, right. Maybe. Oh yeah. <laughs> let's, let's go back into the woods and find out. No, I would love for them to find the two holographic Charizards that are worth over $50,000 each now. Dude, see this, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. You know, like I have a, I have a force effects lightsaber. I mean, when I purchased it, it was like 200 bucks. Um, it is, if you don't, if you're not familiar with force effects, life lightsabers, they are replicas. They are heavy. They turn on with the light that goes from the bottom to the top. They make a noise. When you hit it off things, it makes noise. I don't know how much that's worth now. Probably not much, but like it could be worth something I in, mean, in, the, in, the, in the future. Like, I gave it to Hudson and I said to him, listen, motherfucker. Yeah. Listen, this is a motherfucker. serious yeah. gift. So like, don't fuck this up for yourself don't, or me. And don't break it. Oh, yeah. But I got I, like, it, it really does pain me knowing that. Yeah. That either somewhere in my house or that I lost at some point. I didn't, wouldn't have lost it. I could imagine that one of my parents maybe threw out a book because I had like a, I had a, uh, I had a, uh, like a binder full of uh, Pokemon cards and like laminated card slots. And I had two Charizards. I bought, uh, I bought a, a, my, the first one that I had, I bought it from a friend of mine down the street with, for $20 when I was like eight or nine years old yeah. and my dad was so mad at me because I, because you used because, the money, but it was my money used his milk money. It was my money that I got from, you know, fuck chores or whatever. And he was pissed because he thought he thought that I was being taken advantage of, which at the time I could totally see why he oh, thought that you spent $8 because no, I spent $20, oh, 20. Oh, on, on a Charizard. Yeah, yeah. Right. And he thought that, this, that this kid that I bought it from, who ended up being a friend later in life, or he was a friend at the time, but he was kind of an asshole, but he ended up being a friend later. Um, Brian that, Stever. Not Brian. Uh, <laughs> uh, that, he, that he took advantage of me because he was a couple of years older than me. Right. And, and I was like, no, this is, like the, this is the card. Like, yeah. This is the card that everybody wants. And now there are... It's two, the card that literally everyone Everybody wants. wants. And yeah. now they're literally... Like, it's, like, it's like having a... It would be like having a Bitcoin like Bitcoin on a USB drive that you don't have the password for. Like it's, there's a hundred thousand dollars just sitting around somewhere that I just can't access. Yeah. I would love an extra hundred K. That'd be nice. Trying to find the, uh, trying to find a Charizard. Uh, like how much they're going yeah, for. Yeah. What, what are they going for? I thought it was like 50 grand. I might be wrong about that. It might be less than that. 1999 first edition holographic Charizard. 1999. Oh, 1999. Oh, my God. Oh, the dude. year 1999. Dude, you're so off. Holy No, it's fuck. not more than that. Sales history. No, no, no. Are you ready for this? No, no. In, no. On the, on the, on March 28th, 2021. Oh, fuck. Someone sold one for $311,800. Oh, shut the fuck up. I don't want to. Whoa, dude. Oh, my God. So, again, you know, again, this has nothing to do with our podcast, uh, Sick Boy. But there's like six, but, there's a half a million dollars but, out there. But we're doing this. We're doing this to all the parents out there that are listening to the show. We're doing you a favor. If you come over to my house and help me rummage through my house and like <laughs> tear back some walls, I'll give you 10 grand if we find them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm in. I could use that. Um, all right. Let's get to some stuff that's more relevant, relevant to uh, the reason why people listen to the show. Um, <laughs> so uh, we just another speaking of episodes that we recently recorded. Um, uh, we recorded with a young woman named Chelsea McAleer, 
uh, a nurse out in Edmonton. Uh, and we talked about like nurse burnout um, and, you know, the, the sort of the shitty reality that a lot of healthcare workers are facing right now, which is like being overworked and underappreciated. Um, the same goes for the U.S. right now. U.S. hospitals are so overloaded that one ER in Seattle called 911 on itself. Sorry, what? Yeah. So um, uh, although COVID-19 remains in a lull, hospitals across the country are in crisis amid a towering wave of seasonal respiratory illnesses, such as and particularly uh, RSV in children, um, as well as longer term problems such as staffing shortages. Pediatric beds are filling or full. People with urgent health problems are waiting hours in emergency departments, uh, hallways, and even parking lots. And some hospitals have pitched outdoor tents, conjuring memories of the early days of the pandemic. In one of the most striking examples, the emergency department of Seattle area hospital of a Seattle area hospital became so overwhelmed last month that the department's charge nurse called 911 for help telling the fire department that they were drowning and in dire straits. There were reportedly over 45 people in the department waiting room and only five nurses on staff. Uh, Central Kitsap Fire and Rescue Chief Jay Christian told local media that he sent a crew to the hospital, a crew of firefighters, um, the St. Michael Medical Center, and firefighters helped hospital staff clear rooms, clean rooms, change beds, and take patients' vital signs until the crisis subsided. Wow. Uh, but in public meetings last week, the hospital president, Chad Melton, acknowledged that things aren't getting better. Melton reported that there are more than 300 open positions at the facility, but no one has applied for positions in the emergency department. He said, quote, the emergency department specifically, zero candidates interviewing. Melton said. Wow. Zero. See, this is like the, what what jumps to mind here is like, and not to don't don't jump all over me. I know you will. Um, very similar, like, like a very similar um, sort of vibe to what's going on with like why everything is so expensive right now. So you get um, you get a ton of you get a bunch of people getting money from the from governments. Let's U.S. and Canada um, because of the COVID, because of everything that happened with COVID. So you had like a whole bunch of support. And then all of a sudden, everything gets way more expensive, uh, prices rise, and then there's like, then there's all this supply chain fucking breakdowns. Yeah. So now the supply is less, but the demand is still there, so prices go up. Now, even though government bodies do all this shit to try and tame inflation and, and bring prices down, supply is still really low. So like it's so it props up the prices and makes it really hard for prices to come down. So similar to this is this situation where COVID happens, it totally fucks everybody in the healthcare system. Everybody gets burnt out, yep. jaded, frustrated. All these people leave. Now COVID sort of goes, comes down to an idol into this like manageable state. Mm. But even though the crisis that, that made that overwhelmed everything has come down, everybody got so jaded and frustrated and burnt out from the pandemic that now we've so, sort of sort of come back to these like typical or normal uh, levels for hospital uh, like ho- hospital over like flow and everything. But the people are not there and people are fed up and they yeah. don't want to take the jobs and they don't want to do the work because of all the all the things that we talked with with Chelsea yeah. and with Kira the other day. A report last month from healthcare uh, analytics company Definitive Healthcare estimated that over 300,000 healthcare providers dropped out of the workforce just last year due to burnout and other pandemic related stressors. You know, there's and that's um, in the U S I mean, the same shit is happening here in Nova Scotia and, or, and sorry, what I meant in, to say was Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's like, I mean, there, there's been a number of stories coming out of, uh, New Brunswick, uh, relating to the, I believe it's the ER hospital in Moncton or maybe it's Fredericton, but like, you know, like two nurses <laughs> on staff, uh, with, Totally nuts. Just tons of people coming to the ER. Totally patients nuts. dying. Patients straight up just dying in the in the waiting room in the ER. The uh, fucking crazy. Um, all the provincial health ministers, as we record this, are meeting in BC with the federal health minister. Yeah. Um, uh, pr- provincial and, and territorial health ministers, and so there's been 
there's I, I'm this is like fresh from me like skimming a couple of articles uh, yesterday and today. So if some of this is wrong, don't uh, don't burn me at the stake. But um, like an old school agreement between the federal government and the provincial governments was that they would split healthcare spending down the middle. That mm. would be roughly 50 50 mm. and that it has it ha- like, and I think it's the aggregate when you when you when you like the average uh, the average is actually been that the federal government is, is spending 20 is giving 22 percent instead of 50 percent um, in terms of healthcare spending so the provincial health ministers are basically going to the fed and going yo we need more money yeah we need a ton more money and that seems to be something that just today uh, which seemed really bleak a, 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 few, a few weeks ago now the federal health minister is saying we are prepared to we are prepared to spend more on on healthcare uh, uh, and give more money to provincial uh, to provincial uh, healthcare systems, upwards of like twenty eight or thirty billion dollars um, for Canada. Which and specifically, I heard uh, yesterday that one of the specific things that they was on the table was uh, incentives for um, nursing staff to stay in their jobs. Yeah, I mean that's something we talked about at length in that episode with uh, Chelsea. Um, and also you, you just mentioned there, but my, my partner, Kira, who's also a, a CVICU nurse, uh, she sat in on that conversation. It was pretty eye-opening. Totally. Mm. I mean, just to, just to hear, you know, straight from, uh, people who are working there, like how, yeah, I mean, just like, just how disconnected, just how disconnected, um, I thought you were going to say the horse's mouth and I was going to be like, I was going to say the horse's mouth. Don't you fucking dare call my girlfriend a horse. I, I, I was. And or Chelsea. I, and then I decided, yeah. And then I decided, and then I decided to, to call them the system. Um, <laughs> but how, just how disconnected the, the system and the employer, which you could say is the government yeah. or the, or the hospitals themselves are from like what people need. Which is not super dissimilar from like the things that we find, the things that we talk about in terms of like how disconnected sometimes, not everybody, obviously, but how disconnected sometimes healthcare professionals um, can be from what like a patient needs in terms of like a human mm. interaction mm-hmm. um, and not being treated like a number. Um, and uh, it sucks to, it sucks that at the end of the day, it really does, it really does come down to money. Yeah. And money is not, money doesn't grow on trees. And when it does, we get inflation, so that's a problem. And how crazy is it know, that it's 2022 it. and we still haven't figured out how to make money growing trees? We have, we have, we have. There are money out, trees. We have, we have figured out how to make money growing trees, and the problem is, is that it, it actually fucks everybody. No, but like I mean, actually grow on trees, like actually grow on yeah. actual live trees, like out there. Yeah, that would be a problem. I mean, I wouldn't mind having a money tree in my like, you know. You know, like every once in a while, like when we were growing up, you had that family friend or like your friend's mom and she was like growing a weed plant in your closet. You'd like sneak in, take a couple buds. I never had that. No, you didn't? You'd had that? Yep. I didn't. Uh, how cool would it be if that mom had a money tree? Money tree? tree? And yeah. Sneak in, yeah. grab a couple hundred. And then everybody dollars. gets a money tree and then everything costs more. But if everyone has a money tree. <laughs> That's how inflation works. Hey. Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel, ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast, Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you got your podcasts um this is a really interesting article so this is uh this is a blog post written on sci post uh by a woman named alexandra brazowski and uh the title is new research provides insights into how asexual individuals navigate romantic relationships we haven't talked about asexuality on the podcast, uh, really. I don't think. What's the definition of it? Because I feel like I have a, I feel like I have a misunderstanding of what it is. What's your, uh, what's your de- uh, uh, understanding of it? My, my understanding of it 
um, is that people who are asexual are not sexually attracted to anybody. Mm-hmm. Is that correct or am I off on that? Uh, yeah, I think that's, I mean, like, I think <clears throat> if you were to give the very base definition of it, that is it. Okay. But it's, uh, it's, it's not quite so black and white. It's, there's a lot of nuance there. According to the Wikipedia, asexuality is the lack of sexual attraction to others or low or absent interest in or desire for sexual activity. It may be considered a sexual orientation or the lack thereof. It may also be categorized more widely to include a broad spectrum of asexual sub-identities. Asexuality is distinct from abstention from sexual activity uh, and from celibacy which are behavioral and general, generally motivated by factors such as an individual's personal, social, or religious beliefs. Sexual orientation, unlike sexual behavior, is believed to be enduring. Some, sexual, uh, some asexual people engage in sexual activity despite lacking sexual attent- attract- attraction or a desire for sex for a number of reasons, such as a desire to physically pleasure themselves or a romantic partner or a desire to have children. Um, acceptance of asexuality as a sexual orientation of, as a sexual orientation and field of scientific research is still relatively new as a growing body of research from both sociological and psychological perspectives has, have begun to develop. Um, so this article, um, again, uh, there's not, there's not like a whole lot out there in the literature when it comes to asexuality. And so Alexander goes on to write, though an estimated 1% of people identify as asexual, a sexual orientation most commonly defined as lacking sexual attraction, asexual people remain relatively invisible and are rarely researched. For these reason, reasons, they are frequently subjected to discrimination and stereotyping. Is there a, is there, is there, I, I, I'm, I'm totally guessing here, but I would guess that there are a lot of people who are asexual that walk through a pretty big chunk of their lives not knowing that they are asexual. Yeah, I can't really speak to that, but I do know someone who right now identifies as asexual. And I know for this person that it took them a long time to come to that realization that that's how they identified. Mm -hmm. And in the process of that, um, they had a lot of like unknowns and questions about their own sexual identity, like thinking perhaps maybe I'm homosexual instead mm-hmm. of heterosexual mm-hmm. um, because I don't have these like desires or attractions to right. to the same sex. But then also I, I don't really have attraction to the opposite sex. So like what the fuck's going on with me? I don't yeah. know. Yeah. You know, so I, I think, again, because um, because there's not a lot out there and and because there's a lot of discrimination and stereotyping it's one of those things where like if you are someone who's asexual it it probably is really hard for you to put a finger on what the fuck's going on um because it's not being talked about it's not you know there's not like a whole there's not a whole lot of resources out there for you to turn to mm-hmm. um and i feel like that probably goes that probably it goes goes back to something that's like similar to like really like rare um like rare diseases and Mm. why there's like not enough research and there's not enough funding and stuff is like when when it's like a you know relative to the entire population is probably a very small amount of people that then you end up having like very few resources yeah to also a little i think also a little different too though because we're dealing with sexual identity which is something that like inherently over the span of history has just kind of been viewed as um you know i mean like christ like like different in different cultures but almost entirely yeah like i mean think about like think about the gay community in like 1980s you know like there was just so much oh my god so like so much stereotyping so much like discrimination so much you know i mean christ there's still states that don't allow gay people to get married you know what i mean like it's just it sexual identity is if if it's not heteronormative, it's viewed in some places as like completely fucking wrong. Like we still have people, we still, it's crazy. We still have people vying for conversion therapy. You know what I mean? Like it, so, so it, it definitely, it definitely, I, I see the comparison that you're making there, but I think there's, there's I think a specifically lot. There, for a, for somebody who's asexual, because it's like, because it's like, it's, Conf- it, uh, there's like a, I think there's an added layer of confusion. <laughs> yes, right. To it, uh, when it's yeah. when it's like, you know, 
it's like, well, I'm not attracted. If you're a guy, you go, well, I'm not attracted to women. I'm attracted to men. Like, mm. I'm not attracted to women. I'm attracted to men or women, women, whatever. And then going, but, and then like, I think like, like you said, you would go, Hmm, I'm not attracted to women. So I must be attracted to men. Yeah. And then you go, but I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. And then I'm like, and what the fuck? What, what now? <laughs> yeah. So uh, an example of this is it's often assumed that people who are asexual are also aromantic, uh, that they are, they are not interested in being roman- in romantic relationships or aren't capable of mm. doing so. Uh, however, this couldn't be further from the truth. Asexuality exists on a spectrum, and there's a wide range of how the members of this group experience sexuality and romance. In a recent published, uh, published study uh, that I conducted with several Michigan State facility members and other research associates, uh, associates, we surveyed people on the asexual spectrum who are currently in romantic relationships. We wanted to learn more about how asexuals experience romantic relationships and bring attention to their experiences, many of which, it turns out, aren't all that different from those of people who aren't on the asexual spectrum. Um, Outside of my work as a psychology researcher, I'm a member of the asexual community. Specifically, I am a heteromantic gray asexual. Uh, I am someone who feels romantic attraction to people of other sexes or genders, but experiences fluctuating or limited sexual attraction. Yet in existing research, I found a few examples of people like me. Most studies seem to focus on people who are completely asexual, not in the gray area. In popular media, asexuals rarely even appear at all. And when they do, they're often portrayed as weird, robotic, and incapable of love. In mainstream culture, there's also an element of denialism, with many people believing that asexuality is impossible, uh, that those who identify as asexual must have something wrong with them, such as hormonal issues. Uh, Perhaps they simply haven't found the right person or need to try harder. So this study was born out of my experience as a person on the asexual spectrum, which is why it was important for me to address all the different asexuals out there and give a voice to my own community. Many asexual people choose to be in relationships. They just may go about the process differently. Some might participate in non-monogamous relationships. Others might be forced to disclose their identities and preferences in different ways, wondering when, if ever, they should open up about it to potential partners, fearing that the reactions could be less than positive and leave, lead to relationship difficulties. However, many asexuals relate to the split attraction model, which is a theory that shows how romantic and sexual attraction are two distinct experiences, and therefore, one can experience sex without love and love without sex. Mm-hmm. With this in mind, it is possible for asexuals to identify with a romantic orientation and pursue romantic relationships, since these are different experiences. For our study, we looked looked exactly at this split and surveyed 485 people who self-identified as being on the asexual spectrum and were currently in romantic relationships. The participants identified as heteroromantic, biromantic, homoromantic, panromantic, and more showing significant diversity among the romantic interests of this group. We then asked them about their relationship satisfaction, their level of interest in the relationship, and how they viewed the quality of alternatives to their relationship. Additionally, we explored their attachment orientation. Uh, This is defined as the way in which people approach their close relationships. It's usually formed in childhood and is a pattern that continues into adulthood. People tend to either exhibit an anxious attachment style which is often characterized by feeling worried about abandonment and being anxious about losing the relationship. An avoidant attachment style, which means someone may push people away for fear of emotional intimacy, or a secure attachment style, which is when people feel secure in their emotions and can maintain long-lasting relationships. We're going to talk to an expert about this very soon. That's right. Yeah. So this is the reason why I I wanted to bring this up, uh, because we are going to be speaking with someone who did a big study on attachment styles. Um, which is something that we've covered uh, a little bit on Turn Me On. And I'm excited to kind of dive into this over the next few weeks because I find attachment styles to be really fascinating, especially like looking into attachment styles and like kind of <laughs> self-psych like evaluating and, and being like, where do I sit in there? You know, like, am I anxious? Do I have an anxious attachment style? Do I have a avoidant attachment style? Do I have a secure attachment style? Um and depending on what those are, 
you can then look at the way that you show up in your relationships and like how that forms the way that you show up and how that affects your partner and, and then what's their attachment style. Um, really interesting stuff. So I can't wait to have that conversation. Uh, ultimately, our results were generally consistent with the previous work on relationships in all of their forms. As with those relationships, we found that asexual people who are more satisfied and more in- invested were more committed to the relationships. When they weren't pining for other people or didn't see being alone as a better alternative, their relationships tended to flourish. Attachment orientation patterns were also generally consistent with past research on other sexuality groups. Much like work done on other relationships, avoidant sexual, uh, avoidant asexual individuals were also less committed, satisfied, and int- invested in relationships as one would expect. However, there were also some inconsistencies with past research. For example, among asexual people, an anxious attachment style actually correlated to a higher commitment and satisfaction. The opposite tends to occur in other types of relationships. So again, anxious, rela- uh, anxious attachment style is uh, often characterized by feeling worried about abandonment and being anxious about losing the relationship. Um, and they found that the people that, that were slotted into this attachment style um, were, uh, were actually correlated to have a higher commitment and satisfaction which when you see that in, in other types of relationships, it's, it's often the opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, nonetheless, I hope this research will help normalize the idea that asexuals can thrive in romantic relationships. It turns out that asexuals can experience romantic love as much as other sexual orientations do with the same opportunities for joy and growth, uh, the same challenges of navigating conflict and compromise, and the same possibility of lifelong commitment. I see. I, I, I very much can, um, I, it's super easy for me to think about the separation of like a romantic relationship from a sexual relationship, even though those two things for me are fully intertwined. Like they, they, they don't, they, I couldn't, I couldn't untangle them, but I can see how, I can see how they can be psychologically untangled, um, if if you're somebody who is asexual like that yeah. that makes a lot of sense to me um the one thing that 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 piqued my interest there when you were going along there and 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 from a psychological perspective and and I don't want to, this to come across as if like someone needs to change or anything but i think that there is something i think that there probably is something fundamentally different between somebody who is somebody who is sexually attracted kind of like across the spectrum of sexual attraction versus somebody who is not somebody who is somebody who has the absence of se- sexual attraction and the hormone thing is like I'm I'm going like is there something like and I don't again I don't want to say that as in like you need <laughs> you need to be put on hormone therapy so you can fuck I just mean like is there something going on there hormonally with somebody I, I mean I because your hormones <laughs> have such a massive impact on your libido and yeah. that sort of thing like I'll, I mean I'm, I don't I don't know. know I don't know about the research there but from what I gather you know that's what sets asexuality apart from this like idea about hormones. It's, it's that it's a, it's a sexual identity, right? So like if you're gay, if you're a gay male, that has nothing to do with your hormones. You're right. gay. You're born gay. You know, you like you, you just, you're not attracted to women and it's like a deep down knowing. But that's um, what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. I'm going, I'm going, I, that, that I understand. I feel like, I feel like there's something and again, this is me just going, well, I feel like there's something different from having a set, a, a sort of, um, what, what, what's the word I'm, is heteronormative the word I'm looking for? Like, I, I feel like there's something different from having a sexual attraction that kind of like spans this, like you, you know, that you have a sexual attraction to, you know, whoever across the board, across the spectrum of sexuality and i'm i'm sort of seeing i'm sort of seeing asexuality as like sort of separated from that a little bit mm. do you know what i mean uh not really but i mean this is why we're having this conversation so we can like dive into this stuff deeper I, yeah. I i i i'm i'm going to i'm going to try real hard to get alexandra to come on the show yeah that'd be great and uh, it'd be really fun to like unpack this a little bit more so that we Again, can like, you know, dive into something that we haven't really touched on very much over the span of the show. Because I see how it can be, I see how it can be, how it, how it can be on, it can be looked at as a sexual identity. Mm -hmm. But I could also see how it could be looked at as like a lack of sexual identity. 
like an absence of sexual identity mm-hmm. as well. And, and so, yeah. Which again is like for people who are going through it and going through that confusion, those are probably questions that are coming up. Yeah. You know, maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe that may like, maybe I, maybe I'm lo- like low in T or something like that. Yeah. You know? And like, I, and I think something that, something that comes to mind is like the, is the experience of somebody who, um, is trans and, mm. and going, you know, I want to, I want to make a transition and to make that transition, um, you might have hormone therapy mm-hmm. to try and to, to, to make those changes, yeah. those hormone, those, those changes at like a very fundamental level. Yeah. But again, those, those hormones, and what's the and difference, those, those right? hormones and those treatments aren't, uh, aren't for the person to, they're not for sexuality. It's not for their identity. Yeah. Their, their sexual identity. Yeah. Like for it's their not for their gender their, or sorry. They're like, yeah, exactly. It's for their gender, their, their gender, uh, expression. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting stuff. Like, and it's again, like just to, you know, just to speak to the lack of, of research that's been put into asexuality, it would be nice to see, uh, or at least to have a conversation about it, to, uh, get a little more insight, um, and to help change the, change the conversation surrounding it, you know, um, back to, uh, the absolute dumpster fire that is our medical system. This is this man, this made me sad. Uh, Nova Scotia mom, uh, as global news, Nova Scotia mom says she had to beg for care while giving birth at the IWK, which is our children's hospital here. Uh, so Megan McDonald thought that she was well prepared for the birth of her first child, her very first child, right? Never done this before. Uh, she and her husband attended classes, did the research, and were highly anticipating the arrival of their bundle of joy. But she says when she arrived at the Halifax's IWK health center, Early one morning in July, after her water broke, what was supposed to be an exciting experience turned into a rather traumatic one. McDonald alleges that from the start of her birth experience, she was met with neglect and a lack of compassion. At one point, being left in a room for 13 hours as she suffered from excruciating pain. Is this the, the story that Dylan was referencing the other day? That's right. Um, she said, quote, if this could happen to someone like me, not that I'm any better than anyone else, but I feel like it was extremely resourceful. And, but I feel like I was extremely resourceful and prepared. It could happen to anyone, and I'm pretty sure it probably does, uh, McDonald told Global News. Leading up to her daughter's birth, McDonald said she had received absolutely extraordinary care from the IWK prenatal center, or sorry, perinatal center. Uh, so, she experienced, so she expected the same level of care during the birth itself. Quote, that was built... That is what built the foundation of what I was expecting to be my birth experience and why I was so relaxed and why I was so confident going into this, she said. McDonald first arrived at the IWK with her mother and husband around 4.30 a.m. She went to an early assessment area where she was giving, given underwear with a pad and told there was, quote, no space for her as 22 other babies were being born. Oh, Kyle was actually telling me that, uh, the other day about how there is like an unprecedented amount of babies being born and the IWK is like... You think that's a COVID thing? I think like... Uh, like people are just like... COVID made us have I a mean, baby. I mean, COVID made you guys have a baby, yeah. yeah. Uh, during her wait, she said she was checked by the resident and the doctor on call. She knew she would have to get an IV later on and asked if she could have a smaller needle because she has small veins and previously had difficulties with IVs. This is crazy. She said, quote, her response to that was, I don't care which size IV you get. I'm going off shift. The doctor said to her. Man. Dude, I like this. I know there's more to this, but like. Can you imagine? I, it breaks my heart because Kyla and I had such an incredible experience at the IWK. Yeah. And I've also heard of other horrific experiences at the IWK and I've heard of amazing ones. Yeah. And I'm, and I. Uh, it just like leaves me going, Oh my God, because, um, because, and I, I am, I am not a, uh, I'm not a home birth person. Yep. Like I, I, I think that that modern science and the modern medical system has allowed birth rates to thrive. And, uh, and I, and I'll say that with the asterisk of home birth with, uh, with a midwife, um, near a hospital is a totally different story. That's like, you know, there are obviously some, there are a few risks that you're taking, but they're, they're more or less calculated risks, but there are, there are, um, 
there are like uh, more fringe movements mm. that have developed, like free births, which is essentially, as I understand it, is um, basically giving the, birth I, in the woods, surrounded by charged <laughs> crystals. I mean, not that far off. It's <laughs> basically the idea that, uh, as I understand it, is that you know we used to just have babies yeah. without anybody else's help. We just have them at home. Yeah. And then, th- and so that's the way to do it, which completely neglects the role of modern medicine, uh, uh, you know, significantly decreasing the amount of babies that die yeah. at birth. <clears throat> and, 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 and experiences like this help yeah. ex- movements like that. Yeah. 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 And that's what really makes me, yeah. makes me sad is going, this thing is so helpful. It helps babies that modern medicine helps babies live at birth at a much greater rate, but then the then you but then you have an experience of really shitty care, and then that story gets retold, yeah. and then that causes conversations which kind of push, which just you know it just gives gives people a nudge yeah. to play devil's advocate. You know, how do you feel about the fact that, and you know, apparently this is a fact that. Um, when you have a baby in a modern day hospital with modern day doctors that they take your baby into a side room and drain it of, you know, uh, a third of its blood in order to extract adrenochrome, uh, for the lizard people that run the country to keep their eye, their like skin looking so supple. I mean, if as long as, um, that results in like, you know, good tax policy that I benefit from, I'm fine with it. Okay. Uh, after about four hours, she said she was. <laughs> People believe that. It's so crazy. Um, after about four hours, she said she was moved into a room in the early assessment and labor ward. She laid on the bed, still wearing the dress she arrived at the hospital in and said she was not offered a hospital gown, water, or even an extra blanket or pillow. Uh, she said, quote, I'm in labor, and I'm a first-time first mother, and I don't know what to expect, McDonald said. No one even offered to help me go to the washroom or to show me where it was. Uh, McDonald said she waited in that room in pain for about 13 hours, during which time nobody checked on her. She only got help after she had her mother, uh, who was with her, to go find a nurse. She said, uh, quote, the only reason I received treatment was because my mother advocated for me. I'd hate to think what would happen if she hadn't been there. After her mother found some help, McDonald got a shot of morphine and was moved to another room and placed in a tub where she labored for another four hours. Uh, Prior to going to the hospital, McDonald had prepared a birth plan, something she was encouraged to do by the staff at the perinatal clinic. But she said that despite offering it to a number of staff members, nobody read it. The birth plan stated she wanted to have an epidural, which would have reduced some of the pain after she was three centimeters dilated. At this point, she had uh, she said she was about five centimeters dilated, but was told the anesthesiologist was busy and couldn't do the epidural yet. Oh my god! She said, "quote All I kept think was all I kept being told was there was no space for you." And during this, I see women constantly being wheeled up to the next floor. She said her mother asked why others who arrived after them were uh, able to go up to the f- next floor and was told it was because they were scheduled for C-section. She said, quote, had I known that, and I know the recovery situation for C-section is longer, but I would have signed up for a C-section. I just didn't know that was available. I'm not sure if that is available. Yeah, I don't know. I I, I know, I actually have no idea. I'm just, I know that Kyla was interested in a C-section. And they were like, not unless you meet the criteria. I think, I think they try to steer you away from, I think that there's a heavy, that makes sense. a heavy encouragement to not do it unless it's necessary, yeah. I believe. Uh, so I just quote unquote, have to wait. Well, I can only wait so long because I can't control how long this child's going to stay inside me and be, and be born. And I'm also begging for someone to pay attention to me to manage the pain. She said, I mean, I didn't go to this. I didn't go into this experience thinking it was going to be a walk in the park and, and that it was going to be painless. Was it going to be painless? No. Is it manageable pain? Yes. Do we live in a first world country where the expectation is that if we have pain and we're able to be looked after and for it to be managed? Yes. That was the expectation. She said that instead of an epidural, she was given gas and air, uh, which she said did nothing to stop the pain. The gas is the gas, as I've understood it when we were going through it, is like it, it ha- it's it's more like 
psychological than yeah, anything. Right. It doesn't. It has an effect, but it's very like those oxygen things very that fall small when the plane's going down. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. With this mask on, it might help. Yeah. Uh, eventually, she said she was put in a wheelchair naked with a hospital gown sort of strewn over me, but not put on me, uh, and wheeled to the next room within sight of other families and staff. And she said, not that I'm a completely bashful person. I mean, it's healthcare. People see people <laughs> naked before, but it was embarrassing. Uh, when she got to the next room and put on a table, McDonald said she finally got the epidural when she was about 10 centimeters dilated. She said, I did have some relief, thankfully, but at the time, you could have told me you were cutting my leg off, and I would have said, just give me the epidural, she said. The nurse in that room was wonderful, said McDonald, and helped her to practice push. Her daughter arrived soon after. McDonald said she hemorrhaged and commended hospital staff for responding quickly, but afterward, she said she was rushed out of the room. I had my baby in my arms, super happy, blissful. The world is a better place, looking into her little face and eyes, she said. But then I was told I have 45 minutes to get showered and ready to get out. McDonald said she went uh, to yet another room to breastfeed her daughter, but had difficulty getting her to nurse. She rang a bell three times to get help, and it took about an hour for someone to arrive. She said the nurse told her she was, quote, not doing it right, which was a painful thing to hear as a first-time mother who had never breastfed before, especially after such a traumatic birth. She later hired a private lactation consultant. McDonald also said she asked for a new pair of underwear with a pad, but was instead told to wash out the pair she had currently wearing and reuse them. I don't find that acceptable. Being told to reuse it after it's been soiled with amniotic fluid and blood after having given a vaginal birth, she said. I don't know. There, I didn't know there was a limit on how many you were allowed to have. So many things I, do, I, don't, I didn't know. In all, McDonald said she interacted with about 10 staff members altogether who had varying levels of professionalism and compassion. McDonald's mother, Evelyn, said that she had her daughter in Ottawa 37 years ago. It was different. She said, quote, healthcare was different when I gave birth to Megan. I could choose a birthing room. There was a rocking chair. There was a nurse, she said. All folks love rocking chairs, eh? Yep. Uh, and this was like, wow. I had never been to the IWK before. It was very big. And, uh, it was a very big surprise. McDonald said she's happy and grateful her daughter is healthy and is enjoying motherhood so far, but the experience has left her traumatized, and she is now attending therapy to work through her feelings. Uh, it also left her reconsidering having children in the future, at least at the IWK. Man, this is, uh, it really does break my heart. Um, and again, like this, really again, is. this ties into the conversation that we just had, um, which will be coming out soon with Chelsea and, and my partner, Kira. You know, Nova Scotia has long been struggling with nursing shortages. Um, and, and nurses have said in recent years that they are understaffed and overworked. I think um, it's, I think it is a hundred percent that. Yeah. Like, I think it is, I'll, I'll, I think it's 97% that. Yeah. Because, <laughs> because that was not an it, like the staffing issue at the IWK was not it, there. I know that there was a bit of a staffing issue, but it was not like it is now. Yeah. And like, we just had such an incredible experience with our nurses and the doctors and, you know, like maybe a couple hiccups in terms of the anesthesio anesthesiology, but it was really just like, it was, it was more bad luck than bad practice. Yeah. Um, and and, you know, no one left our side. We were always we always had somebody there with us. We were being taken care of all the time. Um, people were checking up on us all the time, mm. you know, we, and, and we were in we were in there for three days. So we we worked with we worked with a few different doctors and it seemed like the communication was good between them. Like the new doctor would come in and they seemed like they were very much filled in on what had happened in the previous on the previous shift. Um, and. But I can see how when things get crazy and there's no room um, and there's a ton of people giving birth and there's not nearly enough staff, I can see how it, it really starts to make sense to me when I hear her say, when it was go time for the baby, mm. then it was good. Mm. Because you, I think you get that, you get that switch that gets turned on mm. uh, from the staff that are like, this is... Th and I think that's the that ends up being the problem with an overstaffed unit or an understaffed unit is they can really only dial it in when it's when it's go time. Mm -hmm. And when they perceive it as not go time, it can be very easy for them to start neglecting uh just neglecting care. Mm -hmm. And uh yeah, that it really sucks. Mm -hmm. Because it's such a it's such a 
yeah, I mean, fuck, you you spend nine months cooking the baby. Yeah. And, and, uh, and you don't want it to overcook. And it's hard. And it's, uh, and then you get to the hospital and you want it to be, you want it to be this certain way. And there's always a bunch of toss ups and a bunch of, uh, a bunch of curveballs, a bunch of curveballs, a bunch of like medical curveballs from that, that your body gives you. Mm. The last thing you want are curveballs from, the staff and, yeah. and the experience at the hospital. Yeah. So it sucks. Um, <clears throat> big news in the world of sexual health. Um, this came out this week. Pleasure producing human clitoris has more than. Sorry, what? The pleasure producing human clitoris. Oh, the human clitoris. Yep. It sounded like you were talking about a person. The, the pleasure producing human clitoris. <laughs> Her name is clitoris. <laughs> Uh, how, how many how many nerve fibers do you think the clit has? Oh, I'm gonna go with uh, seven hundred and I'm gonna say two thousand, ten thousand nerve fibers. Uh, first known count of human clitoral nerve fibers could improve health and sexual function. More than ten thousand nerve fibers enable the pleasurable sensations created by the human clit, according to the new Oregon Health and Science University-led research presented today at a joint scientific meeting of the Sexual Medicine Society of North America and the International Society for Sexual Medicine. Uh, the finding is a result of the first known count of human clitoral nerve tissue. The first time. Is there like any, is, are there any like con- contrasting body parts where they're like, you like this has 10,000 and like the fucking, the head of your dick has like five. They don't say anything about the penis, but the, in this article, they do say that um, the nerve, um, the the nerve tissue in your wrist that like accounts for um uh carpal tunnel mm-hmm. um has somewhere in the range of like eighteen thousand um but that's like a really large area right whereas the clit is quite uh quite small quite small in comparison um so it's also about twenty percent more uh this ten thousand is twenty percent more than the often quoted estimate of eight thousand which is believed to be derived from livestock studies. Uh, Blair Peters, the uh, doctor who was behind this, uh, plastic surgeon who specializes in gender-affirming care as a part of the OHSU Transgender Health Program, led the research uh, and presented the findings. Peter obtained clitoral nerve tissue from seven adult transmasculine volunteers who underwent gender-affirming gen- genital surgery. Oh, so by uh, people who are getting... People who were, were trans, people were transitioning from female to male. Yeah, uh, they they basically offered up their their uh, their like the clitoris tissue to yeah their tissue. Interesting. Uh, the tissue was dyed and magnified <laughs> one thousand times under a remote microscope, so individual nerve fibers could be counted with the help of image analysis software. Nerves are made of bundles of thin nerve fibers, also known as axons. Nerves, which carry electrical impulses between the brain and the rest of the body, enable people to feel and respond to stimuli such as touch. The clitoris is the only known human organ that has a singular purpose of providing pleasure. While the tip of its small shaft, the highly sensitive part of the clitoris, also known as the clitoral glands, uh, is is found often outside the body, Uh, much of the clitoris is actually located internally. Below the surface uh, is the dorsal nerve, the main nerve responsible for clitoral sensation. The dorsal nerves are symmetrical tube-like structures that travel uh, on the top of the clitoral shaft and then run downward on either side like a wishbone. So the most sensitive parts are on the side. Um, no, the most sensitive part is the is the clitoral glands, but the the majority of the clitoris itself is actually internal. Uh huh. Um, Peters collected samples from one of the one of the side dorsal nerve tissue, a small amount of which is typically trimmed during gender-affirming phalloplasty procedures. Uh, an average of about 5,140 dorsal clitoral nerve fibers were counted among the samples. Knowing the dorsal nerve is symmetrical, the average is, was multiplied by two to arrive at an estimate of 10,281 nerve fibers for the human clitoral dorsal nerve. Uh, because the clitoris also has other smaller nerves be beyond the dorsal nerve. Peter noted that the human clitoris uh, actually has more nerve fibers in total. Uh, while the penis has a, uh, been widely studied, the vulva, which includes the clit, 
labia major, uh, majora, and labia minora is poorly understood. Medical science hasn't historically paid much attention to the sexual function of people with vulvas, which has led to a significant knowledge gap in the field of sexual health. Peter studies clitoral nerves to improve outcomes for phalloplasty surgery, which creates a new penis for transmasculine patients. Um, he aims to use the findings to improve sensation for surgical patients by better selecting nerves to connect during phalloplasty procedures, as well as to develop new surgical techniques to repair injured nerves. Uh, the findings could also help reduce accidental nerve damage for patients who undergo an aesthetic procedure known as labiaplasty, which reduces the size of inner flaps of the skin on either side of the vaginal opening. He said, quote, better understanding the clitoris can help everyone, regardless of their gender, gender identity, but it's important to acknowledge this research is only possible because of gender-affirming surgeries in transgender patients, Peter said. Uh, there's something profound about the fact that gender-affirming care uh, becoming more commonplace also benefits other areas of healthcare. A rising tide lifts all boats. Oppressing or limiting transgender health care will harm everyone, which uh, I think is a really, really nice little note there at the end. So uh, thanks to the, to the trans folks that uh, helped uh, Dr. Peters come to this recognition that the clit has over 10,000 nerve fibers. And now we know more about the clit. Uh, have you ever seen the Seinfeld episode where Jerry, Jerry can't remember the name of the girl that he's dating? No, uh, I, I mean, yes, but I, I don't remember. And she gets, sure, they're on the couch and, and, and they're about to get into it. And she's like, she says something about her name and she's like, well, you know, you tend to get bullied when your name rhymes with the female body part. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. And yeah, he's right. like, uh, and he's like, and, and then he takes a stab at it. At the, like he, he can't remember. And at the very end of the episode, he's like, she's like, what's my name? And he goes, Malva. <laughs> <laughs> and then she's going down the hallway and she yells back Dolores and he goes, ah, Dolores. Uh, that's funny. Um, let's, uh, let's go into this week's edition of what the hell? Do you remember when I told you the story about, uh, how I may have potentially fucked up my nephew, Austin, by telling him that if he eats his boogers, that they'll gang up in his belly and eat their way out of his belly because yes, they have sharp teeth. I do remember that. I should have told him this. He was very, he took that seriously, didn't he? He did, yeah. I should have told him this. Mouse study suggests a surprising link between nose picking and Alzheimer's. Actually, you should listen up to I this I should listen. Too. I pick my nose like that's my job. You do. A new study has revealed a tenuous but plausible link between picking your nose and increasing the risk of developing dementia. This seems insane. Well, in cases where picking your nose damages internal tissues, uh, critical species of bacteria have a clear path to the brain which re uh, responds to their presence in ways that resemble signs of Alzheimer's disease. Wait, what does it say? Picking your nose does what? In cases where picking at your nose damages internal tissues. So if you pick and say there's like a crusty oh. bug and it's like real crusty I'm and it's bleeding. like that's there and then you pick and you go, oh, oh, ow. Oh, I don't you, do like, that. I don't like, do that. like pulls out a couple hairs and you get like an open sore. I don't do that, dude. I don't get sores. I don't know. I've seen you pick your nose once and wince. Uh, there are plenty of caveats here, not least that so far the sporting research is based on mice rather than humans, but the findings are definitely worth further investigation and could improve our understanding of how Alzheimer's gets started, which remains something of a mystery. Dude, what if that was the conclusion? Is that not, would that be crazy? It was crazy? like, if you pick your nose, if you, you pick get your Alzheimer's. nose, you get, yeah, you're, you're up for it. A team of researchers led by, I should ask my grandfather if my nan picked her nose a lot, or I should ask my grandfather. He, I mean, they both, they, they both, I mean, nan's dead now, but. He's uh, he's he's pretty far gone. Yeah, I never saw him pick his nose. Maybe he's a private nose. It picker. could be a private one. Private picker. A team of researchers led by scientists from Griffith University in Australia ran tests with a bacteria called Chlamydia pneumoniae, uh, pneumonia, uh, which can infect humans and cause pneumonia. Uh, the bacteria has also been discovered in the majority of human brains affected by late onset dementia. It was demonstrated that in mice, the bacteria could travel up the olfactory nerve, joining the nasal cavity and the brain. What's more, when there was damage to the nasal epithelium, epithelium uh, the thin tissue along the roof of the nasal cavity, nerve infections got worse. This led to the mouse brains de uh, depositing more of the amyloid beta protein, a protein which is released in response to infections, plaques or clumps of the protein, 
were also found in significant uh, uh, concentrations of people with Alzheimer's disease. Um, they said, quote, we're the first to show that chlamydia pneumonia can go directly up the nose into the brain where it can set off pathologies that look like Alzheimer's disease. Uh, we saw this happen in a mouse model, and the evidence is potentially scary for humans as well. The scientists were surprised at, by the speed at which the C. pneumonia took uh, hold in the central nervous system of the mice, which infections happened happening within 24 to 72 hours. It is thought that bacteria and viruses see the nose as a quick route to the, to the brain. I mean, you know, our fingers are fucking dirty, you know? Like, and you yeah. sticking your, sticking your fingers up there and, like, rooting around... But is this like if it, it like just don't just don't pick your nose till till it bleeds, like if you don't or, pick your nose till it bleeds, or pick your nose, then you're okay. <clears throat> pick your nose with a tissue, because I'm not really looking for. You know, I'm not really. Q-tip. I'm not looking to stop. I know really what I'm saying. I know. Yeah, well, it's it's like me with the snooze. You know, I know this shit causes mouth cancer. I'm not looking to stop. Right. We don't care. We hear the stuff. We go. Eh, well, hopefully that doesn't happen to me. Exactly. Is my is that a phone ringing? I don't think so. No, I'm going. Oh, maybe I'm. I think, dude, oh, stop picking your nose dude. now. Dude, it's now. started already. Stat. <laughs> uh, November 16th, we are coming to Ottawa. We're doing a live show at Algonquin College. Nailed it. And we cannot wait. Uh, get your tickets. Tickets are on sale now. You can find the uh, the tickets in the show notes of this episode or our Instagram. Um, so we'd love to see you there. And, uh, and if you want to support the podcast, uh, you can do that by leaving a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, or you can come on over to our Discord where uh, we have lovely conversations all the time and uh, lots of people chiming in there. And you can even help <laughs> produce the podcast over there if you like. Um, and, uh, and also, if you listen on Spotify, uh, leave a little rating on your Spotify mobile app. I don't think you can do it on the computer, but you can on your phone. I mean, who would do it? On, who's, who's really using it on the computer anyway? I use Spotify on the computer a lot. Yeah? Yep. Okay. Yeah, a lot. Um, and if you would like to tell us anything about specifically tongue ties and lip ties in infants, <laughs> then you can send, uh, your expertise and knowledge on that, um, and experience to letters at sickboypodcast.com. That doesn't benefit me in, in, directly in any, in any way, but it's just something that <laughs> popped into my head, uh, and I'm curious about, uh, letters at sickboypodcast.com and, um, if you want to be on the show, go to sickboypodcast.com slash contact and fill out the guest form and uh, we can uh, maybe have you on the show to talk about whatever it is you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And thank you to everybody who makes this show happen. Myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, even though he didn't make this episode happen in any way, shape or form because he's on the ice sheet of Antarctica. Uh, Jeff Lonis. Um, uh, Donovan Morgan and Rich O'Coin for doing the theme music. That is it for this week. I am Taylor. And I'm Jeremy. And this is Sickboy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.